looking with a critical eye at every an interaction that a patient and a partner might have from the initial call to the consult with the physician, day-to-day interactions with the front desk staff, even working with financial counselors in the program and having options. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. We're talking about the growth of third party and particularly LGBTQ plus patients as a practice area today on the show. My guest is Dr. Daniel Kayser from RMA Northern California in the Bay Area. Dr. Kayser talks about how he started his career in choosing even which state he moved to based on the laws that were more accommodating to he and his husband at that time and then where they ended up moving to further that practice in the Bay Area. He did his fellowship at Brigham and Women's. He joined RMA of New Jersey in 2014, I want to say, and then has recently been at the Bay Area. And we talk about what is needed to grow a third-party program to serve LGBTQ plus patients, access to care, and something that surprised me about segmenting or not the patient populations within that broader patient population. So I hope you enjoy today's show with Dr. Dan Kayser. Dr. Kayser, Dan, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. Great to be here with you. Good to have you on. We were saying before we started that it's, it's like we've known each other. This is the first time we've actually spoken face-to-face, so to speak, via video. And when we were talking... You mentioned something that I thought would be interesting for the intro. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was talk to talk about serving LGBTQ plus population as a practice area. And it was also, which is what you do now in the Bay Area, but it's also part of the reason why uh, you, you chose either your fellowship program or the first practice you worked with. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I ultimately went into reproductive medicine and infertility, specifically to be able to help my own community in terms of other LGBTQ patients. I I knew at the time that for me to have a family, this was the path that I personally would be taking. And so I became interested in IVF early on in medical school, actually, through introduction to reproductive physiology by some really great professors and then had done some away rotations even as a med student on like the infertility unit. So I, I fell in love very early with the actual, the actual profession, but I was commenting that reflecting back that my husband and I got married in 2009 in New Hampshire. We met, my husband Dana is a, a physician as well, and we met in medical school. And at the time in 2009, New Hampshire was actually one of the only states in the country that recognized same-sex marriage. And so what felt to be a very new kind of cutting edge thing, now, fortunately, it 
almost seems commonplace in, in terms of two men or two women getting married. But we had a church service and had a reception on campus and were surrounded by dear, dear friends and family members. And this was six years, I guess, before the Supreme Court ruling to legalize gay marriage across the country. And so in choosing, frankly, where I did my like postgraduate residency and fellowship training, we looked to states at the time that allowed gay marriage and recognized our marriage. And we ended up moving to Boston, Massachusetts, where I did OBGYN residency and then stayed for fellowship training. And then at the end of my fellowship in 2016, had had been looking for my first position out outside of kind of the training sphere and still was looking for for states that were inclusive in terms of marriage law. And so I signed I, I came to RMA for a number of reasons, but in 2014 is when I initially um signed signed contracts to come on. And at that point it was still like a year before the Supreme Court rule. And so truly like if you look back at at the places that I went to medical school, residency, fellowship, even my first job, it's informed by like policy and where I could frankly have, have rights recognized at the time and felt welcome and celebrated. So, you know, fortunately here in 2022, it, it feels like a lifetime ago that there were places in the U.S. that did not recognize a relationship like my, my husband and mine. It's pretty amazing to reflect back, like even in those short 10 to 15 years, how, how far we've come along, frankly. So that was part of how you chose the state that you ended up at. Well, one of where you got married in New Hampshire in 2009, but then to practice in 2014 at, at Army. And sorry, that was, that was for your fellowship was in, was in Massachusetts. Your fellowship was in Boston and then your, and then, so it was your first job after fellowship was in New Jersey. Brand banking new, like infertility fellow just finished and then signed on to join RMA of New Jersey. And yeah, and moved to actually Philadelphia um, at the time. And the, the practice that I was helping open up in Southern New Jersey for RMA was like just across the Delaware River. So it commute across, across state lines and would go to work each day. But I was at at Army New Jersey for a few years and really helped them develop LGBTQ kind of care. Why that right. practice though, Dan? So I'm, I'm following why you ended up in New Jersey. Your interest in REI and particularly this application of REI started pretty early. You said you, you were starting to figure it out in med school that this directly impacts my community, d directly impacts me. And a lot of people don't come to that realization so early, or at least not for their subspecialty. Often they don't even come to their specialty until a little bit later and, and you notice it pretty early on. So, but what about the practice continued to follow that line for you? For me, it, a couple opportunities at, at RMA that attracted me there, frankly, one was to help open a new IVF center for them in, in South Jersey. And so, you know, a dear friend and, and partner, Jason Fernasiak and I helped establish and open a, a new center there for, for RMA to kind of anchor the South, which was an amazing opportunity directly out of fellowship to be involved in everything from architectural plans to kind of operational 
and management of the decisions, large decisions down to the very tiny finishes things. So that one a compelling reason right out of fellowship to come to RMA. And then secondly, I had the opportunity to, based on my interests of egg donation and surrogacy, to help lead their third party program. And so truly a year out of fellowship, I had had taken on for for the practice of, of 25 docs or so, the, the director of the third party role, which I feel fortunate of that opportunity and frankly had really great mentorship there in New Jersey to help helped me kind of establish myself in that as, as not only an interest of mine, but something that I have expertise in and, and I'm excited to be able to offer patients, frankly. So it was the, it was really a great, great opportunity at the right time. What was it like building out the LGBTQ plus practice area part of the third party program practice area? So you, you, you've got a LGBTQ plus focus as a part of third party, what was involved in building that out? Yeah, it's, you know, in looking back, it, it, there was already program there. And, and frankly, since the practice had opened in 1999, they've been, had open doors and have been inclusive to patients of, of any sexual orientation or identity. But I think it was more systematically and kind of comprehensively thinking about this as like a sector of, of care that is growing and that we need to have a more cohesive program. And so the care is in terms of what actually is being done at donation and surrogacy, it's not unique to, to gay men, for example, but you know, some, the messaging and, and frankly, some of the like content online and how you interact with patients and what patients expect it is unique. And so when working with the, the third party team there, it was helping to grow a few aspects of, of the program, specifically like advocacy and online presence for LGBTQ care, both on websites and social media. And then also frankly, getting involved in, in research this area as well. So it, I think, went from offering these services to to try to kind of put together a program, frankly, where it, it is not only taking care of patients, but also the the broader community. So at RMA, help, helping to establish really a, a comprehensive program for LGBTQ patients, we took efforts to develop the advocacy role, frankly, as physicians and healthcare professionals thinking about this community and, and what we could potentially offer. And at the time, surrogacy was illegal in, in New York. And so basically like served to, to lobby mostly through like newspaper editorials and writing letters to, to senators and, and, and representatives in New York, just frankly, how important this type of care is for the community. We also, you know, took on some research, um, projects specifically to evaluate best practices for, for LGBTQ patients. One, you know, we published in a major journal looking at the role of one versus two inseminations for single women and also lesbian couples using donor sperm to try to establish whether a single IUI was, was sufficient or if a second IUI added benefit and did not, and that study did not seem to. 
And then we also published the experience that RMA has with over some 10 to 12 years of several hundred men who had gone through the ag donation and surrogacy program to become fathers, really just talking about access to care. And it, it was a web-based survey that we distributed to former patients and current patients who, who were undergoing this treatment to ask them questions in terms of how are they paying for this treatment? Is insurance covering it? Are they having to travel from out of state to be able to access this? And similarly published this and were surprised to learn, frankly, that something like 40 or 45% of men who we were seeing, like did, didn't have the opportunity to do the type of treatment that we were offering them within their own state. Some of that reflects just the kind of broad catchment area that a practice like RMA has and that people come from out of, out of town, out of state, but but not all of it in that some, a good number of programs either don't have, have a lot of experience in this type of care or choose not to develop it. And we were hoping to, by thinking about this as a more cohesive program, hoping to help establish it as a destination spot for gay men and women, frankly, where they would feel welcome. They would see team members that were in the community and would frankly feel celebrated undergoing this type of treatment. I think when working in some, I now I'm in practice in, in San Francisco, still with RMA, but in San Francisco, I would say, you know, it's, it's roughly one out of five individuals or couples that I see is is LGBTQ or single and doing this with donor gametes. So it's definitely have somewhat of a biased perspective, but it's a growing part of fertility care. And you know, these patients have choice, frankly, in where they go. And in meeting with them, I think what's unique about about the consult that you do is that, you know, they're not typically haven't troubled with years of, of infertility or miscarriage or pregnancy loss. And so we're coming from that very initial consult in a different, uh, different spot in their life. And some of them may never have, have thought that they were going to have kids. And the decision to, to like set up that initial appointment is a large one in that it's like they're, they're consciously like for the first time undergoing the steps that are needed to to have a child and to start their family. The, the pregnancy rates that we can offer through, through this type of treatment, they're really the, the best that, that you can do in, in fertility in terms of in particular egg donation and surrogacy. So it's never, never a guarantee. It's a never a hundred percent certain, but they're overall very, you know, excellent clinical outcomes. And I think the tone of the consult from day one, it is, it's frankly helping them celebrate that choice that they're, that they're starting their family and helping to reinforce that choice that they're making a, a good decision and, and educate them about, about the process, not only in the fertility treatment, but connecting with other, other couples or, or individuals who have, who've um, done this and have young families. By doing that, you're validating that they came to the right place too. And you mentioned earlier that that they have a choice in where they go. And it does seem to, to me that a handful of doctors or a handful of practices see far more than, you know, the, the, the proportional representation of same-sex couples and, and many see far fewer, perhaps because many see far fewer. And it reminds me of, of 
so, someone called me a couple of years ago and they really wanted to target same sex couples and particularly same sex male couples. Mm. And they were just, even before we even got to needs or shit, they were, how much will it cost? How much will it cost? And I was like, I don't, a lot because right. you haven't done anything yet. And all you're doing right now is coming and saying, I just want more of these dollar signs coming into my practice. Meanwhile, there are a num there are some people in the in the country, doctors and practices, that have really built practice areas for for that. So can you talk about a, a little I mean, now that you're in the the Bay Area, I'm guessing maybe a lot of those folks are are local, but maybe I'm wrong. How far are people traveling for? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say most are within California currently. And particularly in the Bay Area, there's a, a large community and it's becoming more and more common for for men to to have, you know, not only one kid, but come back for you know, a second child. I would say right now it's probably 10% of the of the patients that I see, like specifically for egg donation and surrogacy, are from out side of the state, but just in the last six to 12 months, I think the word is getting out. I'm starting to see more and more international couples that are looking for care as well. So I, I think that's frankly the unique perspective in like being a gay man with a child through egg donation and surrogacy. It's something that I'm passionate about in helping other other um, couples go, th go through the, the process. And I think offer some additional kind of context to the the decisions that have to be made along the way too. So you, you have know. the rapport, the, the personal rapport because of your own experience. You have the advocacy that you've been a part of. You, you talked about the messaging as a part of that, but you alluded to some some systems at, at one point earlier in the conversation. What were some of the systems that you had to update to better serve LGBTQ plus patients? Yeah, it's really fascinating to like sit and and think about this, about like, and some of it happened organically and other was more thought out. The fertility care, frankly, really grew in the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of the practices that, that formed at that time either weren't offering this treatment or weren't offering this treatment well. And so a lot of the systems were, were built, frankly, around straight couples only and had some inherent biases kind of baked into them, not intentionally in my opinion, but truly just reflective of the care that the, the type of patient that they were caring for and, and what a family looked like in the nineties and even early two thousands. What are some examples? Yeah. One is just representation, frankly, online in terms of the the content that's on, on websites. There is a survey that was done in, in 2017 that was published in Fertility and Sterility that looked at this and they looked at all re SARP reporting members at the time. And they truly just looked at their websites to determine whether or not they had content for LGBT patients or not. And it was actually just 53% of the time that the 300 plus start clinics had had any content whatsoever for gay couples. I think if you did that study now, if I had to guess, it'd probably be more like 75 or 80%, but it's definitely still not a hundred percent. So just truly even like having content on your website and like appropriate information there is, is one example. 
Another example is intake, frankly, like intake forms and and how patients and their their partners report their medical history and and basic things like sexual orientation and gender identity. A lot of a lot of practices are still their intake forms are gendered and assume that they have assume you have a partner. And so one of the structural things that that I helped do kind of early on in helping establish this program is just frankly to look with a critical eye at the forms that that patients sign and submit on establishing like a new patient consult. Everything from the non-discrimination policy, making sure that it had LGBTQ kind of identifiers in there to frankly collecting sexual orientation at the initial call and preferred pronouns. And the intake forms that, that we started with were, interestingly, they were kind of custom made for different kind of types of treatment. Insofar as like a heterosexual couple, there is a separate form for a transgender patient. There is a separate form for a lesbian couple. We thought at the time it felt like the right thing to do as you could really tailor the questions that you were asking to that particular type of patient. And then through frankly, patient feedback, just an experience in working with different couples, it actually, and not surprisingly, it, it became clear that like these separate forms don't always capture the broad range of experiences people have and the types of patients and, and frankly, ways that they can do treatment. So it's hard to kind of put, put people into a box of a form. And so we actually like just generalized one form and went back to one in intake form, uh, but made it very, very inclusive. And so, so that's uh, interesting to me because the nature of sort of everything is to become more fragmented, right? More, yeah. more specific, more specialized. Start with three TV channels, then we add to, with cable exactly. and have a hundred, and then we go to the internet and we have uh, infinite. And so, one would have thought, okay, we're starting from we're back at the time where it's just partnered male female couples, and then we start to serve maybe gay women, then we start to serve gay men, and now transgendered couples and others, and so. I would have made the assumption that you you further segment and, and your experience taught you otherwise. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is exactly right. And that, that was our initial um, consideration as well. It just didn't seem to work as well as a single form did. And just making sure the language in the form had, had space and had range to cater to the different patients that, that we care for. Another example of this is in terms of like looking at kind of structural things about a program is the medical record and how these episodes are documented by the clinical staff and whether or not you can query whether sex, sexual orientation or partner status in the medical record so you can do research. You can't change anything or can't look at whether an effect is or intervention is improving anything if you're not measuring it. So truly the first, like one of the first things was like, we have to collect sexual orientation and for everyone coming through the door. And like you, interestingly, it was like, you know, the first time that this was being counted that like gay, gay men and women were being counted at the practice. And it's crazy to think about it, but it, it wasn't until the 2020 census actually in the United States that sexual orientation for the first time was like included at the 2020 census. So like also now being counted in the kind of U.S. census as well. And with the hope to like that, that can 
by measuring it, you can address gaps and figure out where resources are needed. You can do research projects. So in any event, the, the medical record just is truly being able to count how many consults you're doing of this type is important. And then also other things like allowing nicknaming to happen where you can assign like a nickname for a patient. That's particularly important for like our trans community in that a lot of trans men and women don't like identify with their birth name and they actually refer to it as their den name, like their name assigned at birth. And so they go by like a, a nickname. And so whether or not your EMR can capture and can assign like nicknames as the preferred names, we looked at consent forms to make sure that consent forms were gendered and assumed partner status. So I think it is looking with a critical eye at every kind of interaction that a patient and a partner might have from the initial call to the consult with the physician day-to-day -day interactions with the front desk staff, even working with financial counselors and, and the, the program and having options for that are inclusive for financing. That's frankly, there, there are some, some kind of outside organizations that allow you to take up quite a, a large sum that, that of money that you can finance at a low interest rate. So just frankly, like having information available about how to make this a feasible thing to undertake, I think is important and being in network with some non-traditional payers is not the right word, but the, the major payers like historically in fertility care or the major payers outside of fertility as well, the blues and Aetna and so on. But some of these groups, and I have no relationship with any of them, but progeny and Kara and Maven, some of these payers are are doing, frankly, really revolutionary things for LGBTQ care in that they offer egg donation and surrogacy benefits, but they don't, they're not concerned whatsoever about a patient's sexual orientation. So one of the biggest ironies in my career as like a fertility doctor, start like going to set out to start my family. It's at the time I was in practice in New Jersey, a mandated state and truly had really amazing fertility benefits. They're a major payer that covered everything in IVF. It covered egg donation and even covered like a reimbursement for, for surrogacy. But the irony is that based on who I was married to, I actually didn't have access to any of those benefits in a mandated state as a fertility doctor with really, really comprehensive plan. And that doesn't sit with you well when, when you experience something like that firsthand. And fortunately there are other ways to make that journey feasible, but in looking, in looking back at it, there are a lot of, a lot of insurance companies, frankly, and in, in, in my opinion, are discriminatory, um, still against against our community in, in helping establish families. And they have a very, I, I think outdated definition of infertility and like who, who has access to this type of care in that they're defining sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, not leading to conception after six or 12 months. So for one in 20 individuals in the US now, that's not a reality. And so even if you don't 
choose to use those benefits, I think it's important to like be included, to have the option as you're paying into that. So these other payers like Progeny and, and so on, just truly by not defining who can access their benefits has like really revolutionized the number of patients that we're seeing and also like how many people are frankly interested in 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 starting starting their family it's not surprisingly when you like lower barriers to certain things more people come and more the interest is is broader than maybe initially expected so I think over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see a tremendous increase in the number of gay patients that we're caring for. And I think really important to like make ensure that your, your practice is, is up to date and contemporary with this type of consult and this type of care. I want to ask you about where you see the trend going because you're managing third party and LGBTQ plus patients are a part of that. And you said one in, you said about one out of five patients is LGBTQ plus. It, right. and, and so do you see within that, you mentioned you think it's going to grow in the next 15 years. Are we already starting to see some doctors that, it, is there enough demand now that in a large city that one doctor could say, well, of course I see anybody, but given their caseload there, they only see gay male patients. Are, like, one, are we already starting to see that? Two, is that what you're talking about when you're seeing that growth in the next decade and a half? A really interesting question. And I honestly feel like based on my own clinical volume, I could do that. I almost could do that now. My partners would probably kill me, but- Why would your partners play? Well, no, just based on the clinical volume. But I think frankly, at some point, I'll probably be there. Markley and Dearest, RMA Connecticut is- really become a mentor of mine over the years. And he's honestly the only, one of the only docs that I know that like exclusively cares for men going, going through the, the process. I don't know if I would necessarily like be that specific in like all egg donation, all surrogacy. I frankly like the whole breadth of doing donor inseminations for single women and, and lesbian women and, and frankly, just being helping members of this community get to the point of being a parent. So I do think in particular, I do know some other recent graduates that are gay and are, are open about, about their like experiences. I think have interest in this as well. And even some current fellows that may as well too. So I genuinely think that this is like, it's a very specific segment, but I think if done well, you can, you can, this can be like a reason people seek out your practice and it's a way to differentiate your practice, frankly. Dr. Liam Darris has been on the show as well. We'll link to that episode. It's probably a two-year-old episode now. We'll link to it in the show notes. Why did you move out to the Bay Area, Dan? I moved to San Francisco to help RMA of Northern California open and kind of establish their third-party program and help develop kind of LGBTQ care here as well. I also am like joined two really great friends as partners and it was another, you know, great opportunity at the right time. So is, is RMA of the Bay, is that also part of EVRMA or it's different? Because I know that they're, you know, like, they're like you mentioned Mark Linderis of RMA of Connecticut who, who have just rebranded, so they're Loom Fertility now. Like that's not part of EVRMA and neither, neither is RMA of New York. And then there was RMA of 
Texas and they're not an RMA anymore. And then there's others that are, they're all straight up part of the same EVRMA company. Nobody seems to know the answer. To so where, where do you guys fall in that spectrum? It's a, it's a great question, but we are part of the RMA network or EVRMA in, in Northern California. Okay. So you're true blue EVRMA. So you were staying within the same company. You, you exactly. were, you were moving from the East coast to the West coast. They, they were starting, they were building that practice out there and, and there was the opportunity to, to, to relocate. You mentioned are there any other major, I mean, New Jersey had a, had a mandate. You mentioned though, that their mandate wasn't completely inclusive and now you're in the Bay. Were there other major differences between the two states that are worth mentioning? That's interesting. I would say in California, particularly in the Bay Area, there is more directed, like known ag and sperm donation than out east, at least currently, or, or where in, in New Jersey I was in practice, in that individuals and couples come with like a particular person in mind that they're wanting to donate. And I think it frankly speaks to like how fluid certain kind of families are and like what family looks like in, in the 21st century in that I have frankly friends that other gay men who have acted as, you know, a sperm donor for like a single one, for example. And so in, in California, I see more and more of those kind of creative ways that you can start your family. And I think it's really rewarding to not only help like screen and educate the, the sperm or egg donor and what they're doing and, and link them up with reproductive psychologists and counselors who help them navigate, frankly, what this means for their life and what type of relationship they want to have with the child. But it's, I think, more and more, at least in this community, important for, for patients to like know their donor. So I think the trend is probably moving away from kind of anonymous or not known egg donation and, and sperm don donation. People, frankly, we talk at every consult when, when using donor gametes that it's not truly anonymous. And in particular with Facebook and 23andMe, Google image search, if you wanted to find your donor, like an anonymous donor, you absolutely would be able to do so or like often. So for that reason, we don't say anonymous anymore, but are you saying not just, uh, not just for that reason, can we not say anonymous? Are you also saying that we're moving away from undisclosed that it, are we moving back toward, or are we moving towards disclosed for that reason? Yeah. I mean, I, I see more and more people choosing like the open ID or identity release where you can like learn about the sperm donor at age 18 if the child wants to, or doing truly like known or directed sperm or egg donation, just so you, the child has an option to, to like meet their part of their origin story and couples navigate that differently. Sometimes the couple or the child would never want to explore that. And others, others are really curious about that. When my husband and I went, went through egg donation, we, we wanted to like have an egg donor that we knew. And we did so through, you know, the, through the practice and, and met her not only really for two reasons. One was to protect that option for future contact, but secondly, it was frankly just wanting to thank her for, for truly like what a life-changing thing that she has done through egg donation. And 
every donor that I tell him or her that in that I genuinely thank them for like what they're doing for, for that couple. And I think on a busy day, it's like easy to, to lose that perspective. And it's easy to think about the egg donor who had 30 eggs retrieved and what a great response she had. But in particular, like going home to a child from an egg donor and like playing ball in the backyard or holding your, your son, reading him a book, like recognizing that like the only reason that, that you're in that space is through like some altruistic act that, that someone else went through. I think it gives you like a tremendous amount of perspective and just you, you feel so grateful that like what, what these men and women are doing. And so I like caring for the donors themselves too. So it's a part of that is like educating them, not only about their own fertility and like about their hormones and their body, but also just letting them know what an important task that, what an important endeavor that they're undertaking and to thank them. Well, we've made some creative about that. And that makes me think of some more and that topic could be could be its own show topic. I'm going to let you conclude the way you want to conclude about the future of third party, about the future of serving LGBTQ plus patients. But before I let you conclude, however you want, I'm going to, I want to drag you into a fight, Dan, and you can choose to pick a side in the fight. You could choose to break up the fight, but I am dragging you in here. And this is the fight, which is recently I've, I've had, everybody's allowed on the show. We've had 130 plus, I think you're going to be Episode something, 130 plus. Maybe. Everybody is allowed on the show. Small practices, large practices, people that are coming from venture capital and private equity, people that say they're going to stay independent forever. Everybody's allowed on. Recently, I've had a couple groups on, one in particular that has a model of expanding or their value prop, whether they serve it or not is another question, but their value prop is to expand care by having... REIs oversee OBGYNs or maybe PAs and NPs. And, and so this, this has started some stuff. I, I think they're going to come back on the show. Some of, of you know, at least one of the doctors that I had at Chrism has, has volunteered to come on and, and, and hash this out. And, and I was at PCRS and people were bringing it up to me. And so I wonder where you sit on this. And I want to say, I did get emails from REIs as well. It said, I love this idea. Can I talk to these people? And there are REIs that are already doing this model on on their own. But the objection, of course, was Dan that that can somebody just can just a a generalist OBGYN who's never sat through any part of fellowship training do what I do? And where are they being trained? Are they are they being shipped down someplace? How many cases is the REI? overseeing how closely are they overseeing them are they doing it remotely are they right there in the office and so now you're a board certified rei indeed and you're someone that sees the bottleneck of care and that only a fraction of the people that need treatment in this country are getting it where do you opine on a solution like this yeah this is i think an important point and i, I think we'll We'll, we'll see this settle out sometime in the next five to 10 years, in my opinion. And I completely agree that you, you speak, you, you talk to different REIs and you'll get different opinions of this. I, my personal take on this is truly, I could be the doctor that I am, care for the number of patients that I do on a regular basis, care for the type of patients that I do without advanced practitioners, like 
nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants. For example, our practice in Northern California is relatively small in terms of physicians. I'm one of three docs here. And then we have three advanced practitioners, so two NPs and one um, PA. And the advanced practitioners help with monitoring, with ultrasound, with insemination to saline sonograms, with notably donor screening, which is facial carrier screening. And they're sub absolutely superb in what they do. And they bring such a additional kind of level of care to, to patients. And I think our member of the team, like are absolutely critical to our team functioning as it does. So I think they frankly allow me to be a better doctor. And I honestly go to them sometimes asking their opinion of things. If I have a catheter placement for a saline sonogram, that's tricky. And my partner is out that day. Absolutely. I'm going to ask for one of the nurse practitioners to come see if she can, she can pass it. So I have no, no pride there whatsoever. And we've two of the three advanced practitioners that, that are on staff with us right now, we've trained like from the beginning and, and you can absolutely have them kind of augment your practice and some of could you manage 10 of them or 20 of them remotely and could you or if they're OBGYNs and if they're doing the retrievals and the transfers are you still on board then yeah it's a great question whether like to what what point of of care that that someone outside of an REI doc would would be involved i personally think like embryo transfers should there's so much an embryo transfer is like the culmination of someone's treatment. And so much goes into that in terms of IVF lab, the costs, the emotions, the, the physical aspect of IVF. I personally don't think many patients would, would be on board with having a non-physician or like not even their doctor not do the embryo transfer. So I think that- well, They might if it's a question of eight, of eight grand all in, including meds and everything else versus- 20 grand all in, they, they might, Dan. It, it, no, I mean, if, particularly if you tie it to cost, I mean, you have a compelling point that like, maybe they don't care as much as they might expect, but there's always going to be patients that do. And I, I think we're at a unique kind of crossroads in the, in the specialty in that, like, we're seeing increasing volume. We have like a certain number of trainees, 40 plus that are finished fellowship each year and as you, in your own words, there's a, you know, a bottleneck in clinical care. And so I see a couple of things happening, frankly. I mean, I see some, some practices going the route that are, you know, cost cutting and, and ways to offer more affordable fertility care and like improve access to care with, in the hope of driving up numbers and driving up, frankly, the number of patients it can help. And then I see other practices taking a different stance and this is like a kind of a premium product that we're offering and people are willing to pay like a higher dollar for higher value for better outcomes for more personalized attention so i mean i honestly think there's probably space for both in in fertility care because not every patient is looking for the same thing and i think like to pigeonhole like all fertility patients into wanting like the lower cost option. I think it's, does it capture the breadth of patients that we see? 
I think there's room for kind of both of those models. So this should there should be a debate at ASP. It really should. It, I, no, I agree. It, and not in one of the little breakout rooms either. It should be in the big room because I think it would shake up some salt. You could be the moderator. <laughs> and I think that it's a, a good topic. And it would be standing room only. I, it, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's an important, important thing. And I think if we don't actively like discuss it. I think there is some tension there. But I don't want so I don't want somebody like you arguing either side, Dan. You're two in the middle. I want people on hard on each side arguing it. And I want somebody like you to moderate. Yeah, to, yeah. to moderate it. I'm I'm and, a good Switzerland. <laughs> okay. You can be you can be Switzerland and I'm Switzerland on the show, but I have zero clinical knowledge, which is why I always whenever I bring somebody on like that, I say this is what I'm seeing in the marketplace. You all decide if it's clinically valid, if it's the best standard of care or even an acceptable standard of care. I'm not qualified to give first aid to a paper cut. I was a D student and then I went and got a communications degree from Oswego State, which is why I own a marketing firm. So I let people talk and then I, I let the, the clinicians decide for itself. But I think that would be a, a great for you to debate. And before I let you conclude, I want to say if anyone is listening, I would love to do an episode from somebody from ABOG to talk about what it would actually what would actually be involved in going from 40 fellowship programs to 100 i've kind of asked guests that a la carte on the show i would love to talk to somebody from abog who who could really spend a podcast episode going through what that would be like to go from 40 episodes to 100 so if anybody's listening that's an invitation or a request to email me if you can hook that up Dr. Kayser, I'm going to let you conclude with how you want to either about serving LGBTQ plus patients or just about third party program in general. The audience is yours. What are you paying attention to? What do you want to see for the field? How would you like to conclude? Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a fan and, and like, it's really an amazing opportunity for me to, to talk to you about this. I would leave you with for listeners who whether you're a physician or a nurse or an embryologist or in marketing at a practice, really any role is just to look inward for a moment in terms of how you're caring for the gay community. And I had given a, a talk at the most recent PCRS this year about quote unquote LGBTQ friendly practice and how do you build an LGBTQ friendly practice? I had just finished at the when I was putting together the slide deck, I had just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, a fantastic book that like talks about just structural racism and just how things embedded in the system, whether conscious or not, can impact people's lives in a material way. And in reading that book, I started in preparing my slides for that talk. I started to think about, are we really talking about LGBTQ friendly care? Is that really what our patients deserve? And I, I came to the conclusion ultimately that we should really be doing better than LGBTQ friendly. Well, what my community is looking for in fertility care is to go to like a welcoming practice, a practice that celebrates their family story and frankly, one that's not homophobic. And so like the thesis of that presentation was not talking about how to uh, like run an LGBTQ friendly practice, but rather how to run an anti-homophobic practice. And I think semantics are important. And I think 
if you haven't read that book, it's absolutely worth the read, how to be an anti-racist. And I think it gave me some of the tools to think like critically about my own practice and ways to improve it and would just encourage listeners to, to do the same and consider how we can rise to the unique challenge of caring for men and women who want nothing more when they're sitting across the to become a parent. Well, Dr. Dan Kayser, thank you for coming on this show. I have another book, which is also, which is a rebuttal by John McWhorter, but check out both books and Dan had the last word. So read Dr. Kayser's book recommendation first. Dr. Dan Kayser, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Trippin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.